Hello everyone, we've started this week a seven week series called Words of Hope, a series that develops seven themes which together paint a picture of the New Testament. Each week there are going to be five sets of daily readings and reflections from members of the church. If you've already been following those, then fantastic. I think the first week's been really excellent. Thank you to all of those who've contributed. Um, but if not, uh, please go to our church website and on the homepage right at the top, you'll find them there. So in this week one, our theme has been fulfillment. I wonder if you've ever joined a TV series or a Netflix series partway through and you love what you're seeing and you want to go back to the start of the series to get the backstory and to appreciate it fully. And that's really what week one of Words of Hope and the theme of fulfilment has been about. Just like that TV or Netflix series, you can get a lot out of the New Testament by just jumping straight in. But if you love what you're reading, you will want to get the backstory to appreciate it fully. Some of the greatest stories ever told are stories of life gone wrong, of the promise of something better and ultimate triumph. So take the Lord of the Rings for example. It's the story of the rise of evil and how the races of Middle Earth unite to break its power. But it's also a story of the restoration of its rightful ruler in fulfilment of a prophecy. That's why its third and final volume is called The Return of the King. But in volume one, we come across this prophecy in, in the Fellowship of the Ring. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring, renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. And in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn comes in fulfilment of the prophecy to take his place as the rightful ruler over a united kingdom, ruling with justice and compassion. And this is an echo of the story of the Bible. Jesus too comes in fulfilment of the prophecies to take his rightful place as Messiah or ruler or king over a united kingdom ruling with justice and compassion. So let's take a look at that word Messiah in Hebrew or Christ in Greek. It means anointed one, a person who has been anointed. To anoint someone is to rub or sprinkle an ointment or a liquid over them. And in Old Testament times, this was done to show that the someone or something was consecrated or set apart for God's special purposes. Kings were anointed to be just rulers over God's people. Prophets were anointed to speak God's words faithfully. And priests were anointed to teach and to offer sacrifices. So in one sense, any of the Old Testament kings, <coughs> Old Testament prophets or Old Testament priests could be described as messiahs or Christs because they were anointed ones. But the word Messiah or Christ came to take on a very special significance for the Jews because although in the past God had raised up prophets and kings to usher in times of peace and prosperity, 
the first century Jew was expecting a Messiah, a special Messiah, a Christ par excellence, who would usher in a new age of justice and righteousness. Why were they expecting that? Because that is what they understood from their Old Testament scriptures. They were expecting an outstanding prophet, like Moses. Moses had told them 200 years earlier, the Lord your God will raise up for your prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. They were expecting an outstanding ruler from Bethlehem. We know this from our Christmas readings, don't we? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And they were expecting this ruler to rule not just over Israel, but over the whole earth. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, the psalmist says in Psalm 2. So in the Jewish mind, all of this is wrapped up in the word Messiah or Christ. So when those who became followers of Jesus constantly referred to Jesus as Christ or Messiah, they weren't using his surname, they were using his title. Christ, Christos, is used almost 500 times in the New Testament to describe Jesus. And when we read the words Jesus Christ, we should be thinking, Jesus, the Messiah who was to come, the King who was to come, the priest who was to come, the prophet who was to come. He's come. That's what should be going through our minds when we read the words Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. In Matthew 16, 13 to 17, Simon Peter has grasped who Jesus really is. Other people looking on at what Jesus was saying and doing saw him as a prophet, maybe even as a great prophet, like Elijah or Jeremiah. But Simon Peter really got it. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now this is a major landmark in Jesus' life. This is a pivotal moment. We read in verse 21 that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Peter has understood that Jesus is the fulfilment of the prophecies. He is the Messiah who was to come. And now he and the other disciples are ready for the next thing. They must understand exactly what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Some years ago, I was taught how to windsurf and it brought great joy and laughter to friends and family as I fell off the board again and again and again. I spent more time in the water than I did on the board. But eventually I managed to stand on the board and eventually I managed then to hold the sail and then to tack and to jibe a little and to beach start. And 
I was and still am pretty rubbish at all of those things. But the point is I needed to learn them one step at a time. Peter has grasped the first step. He has grasped that Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. And now he's ready for the next thing. But did you notice what Jesus said in response to Peter's declaration that he was the Messiah? This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Imagine you pay to enter a museum. So the museum has advertised the fact that there's a showcase item in the last gallery that alone is worth a ticket price. So you make your way through the, muse through the museum, obviously not too quickly because you don't want anyone to think you're uncultured, but not too slowly because you really want to get to that last exhibit. And so you reach the final gallery and there's only one piece in it and it's covered in a sheet in the centre of the room with a museum attendant standing nearby. There are others in the room and some of them tucked with disgust at the disappointment and leave the gallery without a second thought. Some people ask a question or two but they're not really bothered enough to find out more and they too leave quickly. Some people you notice are feeling the item through the cloth. You ask the attendant if that's okay to do that. He says it is. And so you too start to feel and to form a sense of the shape of this exhibit. And the attendant is helpful and informative. You start to form a picture in your mind. But it's only when the attendant removes the cloth and the exhibit stands there in its glory. It's only then that you gasp in amazement at what you are seeing. Nothing has prepared you, nothing that you have learned has prepared you for the wonder of this exhibit that you are now gaping at. And it was by revelation that its glory was revealed. Now, some people aren't bothered about Jesus. They don't give him a second thought. Others ask a question or two, but don't really put themselves out. But others search diligently, believing that it will be worth the search. The writer, the writer to the Hebrews said, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. He takes away the cloth and reveals Jesus in his glory. But there's something more, and Peter really got it. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter had grasped this idea that Jesus was much more than a man who was fulfilling the Messianic prophecies. He was the very Son of the living God. Now let's be clear, Peter's not saying we are all God's children. He's not saying you are one of God's children. He said you are the son of the living God. On the day of Pentecost, Peter would say to the listening crowds, let, Israel be, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
Acts chapter 2. Now we're generally pretty happy when our expectations are met, aren't we? We're told the food is good in such and such a place. We go and it's good and we're happy. We're told this product is good. We buy it. It is good. We're happy. We're told the customer services in this company is good. We experience it. It is and we're happy. But we are even happier when our expectations are exceeded. And Jesus didn't just come as the Messiah. He came as the Son of the living God. And that means we should pay attention to him. Towards the end of his life, John spells out why he has written his gospel. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So our view of who Jesus is is not just an academic question. It's a matter of life or death. Every now and again you hear a story like the story of Jan. Jan was a Polish man who woke up after 19 years in a coma. So Jan was technically alive for 19 years, but practically speaking, he was dead. And I think some of us may be technically alive, but practically dead. We are living, we might say, black and white lives. We're dead to the song of the birds. We're dead to the smell of freshly baked bread. We're dead to the sight of a glorious sunset. We're dead to joy. We're dead to hope. We're dead to love. We're dead to a relationship with God. But to have life in Jesus' name is to come alive to all of these things and to see in technicolour what before we could only see in black and white. Like Jan's wife who cared for him for 19 years, God waits patiently for us. He waits for us to believe and to have life in Jesus' name. But to have life in Jesus means so much more than just an improved quality of life. It's about the life after this life. I finished a book recently in which the author said these words, you and I are both battling a terminal illness with no cure and a 100% fatality rate. It's called life. And that's so true, isn't it? After this life, what next? I don't want to be that person who waits until it's too late to find out what happens after my life on earth is finished. And we don't have to. Jesus offers eternal life, life beyond this life, to all who believe in his name. The New Testament message is a message about the Old Testament, declaring that the Messiah has come and fulfilled expectations and promises. But of course, it's more than just the fulfillment of something. It's also the promise of something else, like an exquisite starter before the much anticipated main course. It's the promise of life. So I want to end with some words from John chapter 6, words which are relevant to you whether you believe 
or whether you are yet to believe. Jesus said to them, the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread now and forever. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty.